9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. It's David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I'm here in New York City. We are joined as we are every Thursday by my co-host, Brian Goodman, uh, who has uh, uh, escaped the city and is now on eastern Long Island. And I'm deeply jealous of that. Hi, Ryan. Hi, David. And we have with us a special guest, Representative Jim Himes of the 4th Congressional District in Connecticut. Uh, Congressman Himes is on the Financial Services Committee and on the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He's been on the show before, and we're welcoming him back. Uh, How are you today, Congressman? I'm well, thank you, David. Thanks for having me back on. And where are you where, weathering out the storm here? I am uh, in my home district, Fairfield County, Connecticut, where we're not one bit jealous of Eastern Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> I can well, see Eastern Long Island uh, from, uh, from my district, and so I know whereof I speak. Has a Palin-esque <laughs> statement. That's right. Um, <laughs> all right. Ryan, why don't you kick it off with, with a question for, for the congressman? So uh, first, just to thank you for joining us. It's really an honor to have this opportunity to have this conversation with you. I guess I'd start to start out with kind of news of the day, um, which is, you know, your colleague on the House Intelligence Committee, Republican Representative John Ratcliffe, was just confirmed by the Senate to be the next Director of uh, National Intelligence, the head of the U.S. intelligence community. Um, But he received more no votes than any previous nominee for the position. Um, 49 to 44. And just by way of one example, uh, his predecessor under President Trump, uh, Dan Coats, was confirmed in an overwhelmingly bipartisan way, 85 to 12. So I guess the question is to, at this point, ask you, you know, what do you expect um, from uh, Mr. Ratcliffe's leadership? What do you fear the most? And Maybe for our listeners, uh, one other aspect of this that might be helpful is what power do you think any person could wield as the DNI uh, that worries you most? Yeah, those are all very good questions, Ryan. And uh, let me start by observing that the um, count is what it is. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll come to, to, to John Ratcliffe, who I have gotten to know over the years. Um, but there's just a structural issue here, which is that anybody who would receive the president's nomination to be in that role, to be in that senior of a role, you almost have to give them the reverse benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, we, there, there is no question that what the president uh, is looking for in his senior people is unmitigated loyalty. Um, and John Radcliffe, uh, as anyone who would have been nominated for that position uh, would have to do, demonstrated that during the impeachment proceedings. Now, there's two other things I would say. Number one, in life, it's always a good thing, as my, as my good old friend Barney Frank tells us, is to ask, compared to what? So John Ratcliffe compared to Ambassador Grinnell, I think, is an improvement. Grinnell is 
uh, a, a, a cutthroat knife fighter. And we've seen this uh, in his behavior as ambassador to Germany. Uh, we've seen it in his uh, very short tenure as director of national intelligence, in which he you know, declassified and released highly misleading, um, uh, unmasking things. Uh, and so I, I do think that there is a possibility that John Radcliffe may do a better job compared to Ambassador Grinnell. Uh, and then, um, again, I've gotten to know John a little bit. And, and my, my, I, of course, I worry about the pressure that he will be under by this president, who, again, we don't even need to argue about this, uh, is looking for unmitigated loyalty. Um, uh, what worries me about John is, is he's relatively junior on the Intelligence Committee. And I, as somebody who has sat on that committee for uh, six plus years, uh, the intelligence community is one of the most complex, uh, challenging uh, beasts that there are out there. Um, and, you know, assuming uh, that he has the remainder of this president's term, and I suppose he could have longer if the president is, re- is, is, uh, is reelected, um, uh, you know, he, he, it's going to be very, very hard for him to play a meaningful role inside the intelligence uh, community just because he doesn't come out uh, of that tradition. Uh, DNIs have typically come out of the intelligence community. Uh, of course, the exception was uh, Senator Coates, but, uh, you know, Dan Coates had been uh, on the Senate uh, Select Committee on Intelligence for many, many years and on a variety of commissions. So I, I do worry about John's ability to come up to speed um, as rapidly as one needs to. Well, it's more than just worrying about it, though, isn't it? I mean, this is one of the few jobs that has a statutory experience requirement. Uh, it, it requires that the person who has the job has extensive experience in the intelligence community, and the congressman does not. Um, and, you know, so it, it's clear that the president is valuing loyalty over competence, yet again. Uh, and in terms of how the behavior of the president has been unfolding in the past several weeks and months, it is also clear that one of his priorities, and Grinnell manifested this as well, is to wherever possible uh, continue to cast doubt on the Russia, Russia investigations that took place from 2016 onward, continue to uh, hide uh, uh, suppress or otherwise obstruct uh, uh, evidence and investigations into that. Uh, and in so doing, um, uh, both uh, chill whistleblowers who might come out with more information and make it unlikely that the United States is going to have a strong response if this kind of interference in our election takes place again. Um, and you know, given what happened in 2016, that would seem to be a worrying development, and this compounds it. What's your view on that? Yeah, no, I I, I agree with all of those uh, concerns. Um, uh, John Ratcliffe, uh, while he acknowledged uh, the unanimous conclusion of the intelligence community that Russia interfered in the 2016 election, he joined with that group of Republicans on the committee uh, to disagree with the finding that they did so on behalf of Donald Trump. So here he was one of a bunch of members of Congress who, uh, these are my colleagues, so I don't in any way mean to denigrate them, but they are not intelligence experts, and and John Radcliffe is certainly not an intelligence expert, just out of nowhere decided they would disagree with the conclusion of the Intelligence Committee that that the interference was on behalf of of President Trump. That's not a good omen uh, 
The other thing I worry about, uh, David, is uh, to add to your list of possible horribles, um, there's no reason to believe, and, and I'm the kind of guy who likes to give a former colleague the benefit of the doubt, but there's absolutely no reason to believe that John Ratcliffe will stand up for the constitutional prerogatives of the Congress uh, to do oversight. And so we really worry on the committee that um, the president will prevail. Look, we've had a hell of a hard time getting um, something that we've always done uh, in years past, which is the global threats. Uh, that's always been an open hearing where the heads of the intelligence community come before the committee and talk about global threats. It's been very hard to get that scheduled because, you know, rightly so, the chiefs of the various elements of the IC uh, are, are hesitant to be public about what they truly believe because of what the implications could be uh, with the president. And I fear, uh, and again, it is my inclination to give a guy like John the benefit of the doubt, but in this case, I can't, um, that he is going to be part of the you know, ignore subpoenas, slow walk information, uh, don't pass on to Congress things that might be, um, uh, that might be controversial. Um, we saw this, of course, when um, they, uh, an individual came before the committee um, and suggested that the Russians were up to their old tricks. And again, uh, there was some evidence uh, that, uh, that they would, uh, were doing so on behalf of the president. Uh, and of course, boy, was that walked back very, very quickly just the next week and, uh, it, you know, by the intelligence community. So I do worry that, uh, that John Radcliffe uh, is, uh, it's going to be hard for him uh, to do anything other than participate in this sort of, you know, anti-oversight uh, obfuscation campaign that the president has been running since he's been president. Ryan? Yeah, um, and in some sense, it's uh, remarkable that he already did that during the Ukraine impeachment investigation, where he's sitting inside Congress and saying things publicly about why the president is, has every right not to um, honor subpoenas or participate whatsoever in the investigation, which is just remarkable when he's actually inside the institution, let alone now he'll be in the executive branch. Um, it's, it's really hard to watch. Um, and, you know, I would have uh, behind closed doors conversations with my Republican colleagues and say, you understand that the precedent that you're setting here will be one that will turn around and bite you when you have a democratic president. And by the way, you know, let's think back to the Benghazi investigation. Four dead Americans, very sad. Lots went wrong. Eight different, or eight or nine, I, I lost track, eight or nine different investigations of that event. So we know that when there is a democratic president, they actually do have an interest in, in conducting oversight. But now they've set a precedent where you know, a Democratic president could just say, well, you know, based on the Trump precedent, uh, you know, screw you. Yeah. Um, so one of the kind of issues of the day that I thought would be good to drill down on is the, you referenced it already a little bit, the unmasking uh, conspiracy uh, that there were Obama officials involved in wrongdoing because they requested the identity of Americans that were uh, somehow connected to um, uh, intercepts of uh, counterintelligence, part of counterintelligence investigations, who turned out to be uh, Trump campaign associates or transition officials like um, uh, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. And one of the parts of it that I thought would be really interesting to kind of drill down on is uh, Susan Rice, um, just because she appeared before your committee in September of 2017, and then uh, the committee recently declassified all of those hearings, including hers. And so there's this weird part of it for people who closely observe these matters to think this is like deja vu all over again. Uh, in the last week, um, very right-wing leading uh, 
websites and some Republicans uh, leadership and leadership positions have come out saying, oh, look at the wrongdoing of Susan Rice. But we've been there before. The deja vu is that we had all of that in 2017 with the idea that she had unmasked uh, Mike Flynn's name. And it was settled uh, back then. Um, and now we actually have the declassified hearing so that the American public can actually see what happened. And one thing that I thought was so remarkable about it is that this is not deja vu all over again in one respect, which is that there was actually this flash of bipartisanship right after she appeared before your committee. And I collected a few of these. Um, right after she appeared before the committee and had a full-blown um, uh, hearing, uh, Republican from Florida, Representative Tom Rooney said, quote, I didn't hear anything to believe that she did anything illegal, end quote. Uh, Representative Trey Gowdy said, when um, asked by the Daily Caller whether Rice improperly unmasked Trump advisors or disclosed classified information to the media, Gowdy said, quote, there was nothing that came up in her interview that led me to conclude, quote, that that was the case. And then he said, quote, I thought she gave a very good accounting of herself, frankly, and I'd be the first to say otherwise. She answered every question we had instead and stayed longer than she was originally scheduled to stay. And I can't say that about all witnesses, end quote. Representative Mike uh, Conway, rep Republican from Texas, said, quote, she was a good witness, answered all our questions. I'm not, a, I'm not aware of any reason to bring her back, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> so, so that was then, and this is now. And I just wanted, in some ways, that's an entree to have you talk about what you think about this kind of brouhaha over the unmasking, which to, see, to me seems like a concoction at the same time, there is something serious about potential leaking of classified information to the media. But the timing of it is almost a little bit suspicious. Here we are three years later, and now it's coming to the fore, you know, in an election season. Uh, so that's, you know, at least the way I think of framing the question. But, you know, if you want to dispute the way of framing it or whatever you think about it, it's just kind of an invitation to see how you're thinking through what we're kind of witnessing in this moment. Yeah, Ryan, you you made you made the case uh, with a set of facts that are that are that are facts. Uh, now, uh, you know, gosh, that's naive, right? Because of course, you know, the Trump uh, uh, the Trump uh, uh, campaign of lies, of course, is is fact resistant. Uh, and you're absolutely right. We've seen this before, and you read the quotes from Tom Rooney, from uh, Trey Gowdy, of all people, you know, the sort of inquisitor uh, of Benghazi. Um, and Grinnell was deeply deceptive in what he did, right? So uh, unmasking uh, names is a routine thing that senior officials in the government do. And I had to explain this back two years ago when they ran this unmasking baloney uh, the first time. Um, and the reason that is done is because if a senior official has an interest in something, and remember, the interest here is the possibility that a future senior national security official is having all kinds of phone conversations with the Russian ambassador, right? And subsequently lies about it. So, I mean, you know, th th this is not crazy stuff. But anyway, it's a routine thing. So what Grinnell does is he says, let's look at all of the unmaskings. And of course, there's all kinds of requests every single day of unmaskings. And that's a whole conversation we could have. And the ACLU could be invited into that conversation. It's a good conversation. But what Grinnell does is he says, now, show me all the ones in which people unmasked uh, Flynn. And there were some there because at the time there was real concern in the Obama administration of this former general, this part, now partisan warrior likely to have a very senior position, was having all of these phone conversations with the Russian ambassador. That is legitimate interest. And then what Grinnell does is he says, oh, my gosh, look at all of these unmaskings of 
Michael Flynn. Well, the reality is, you know, yes, there were unmaskings of Michael Flynn, but there were all kinds of other unmaskings too. So if you just hand over a piece of paper that shows all of these unmaskings of Michael Flynn, it looks like there's some sort of uh, campaign, which is what I said before, baloney. It's all in the service, Ryan, though, and, and every once in a while you need to step back here. Um, because it's all in the service of the absurdity of Obamagate, which is as absurd as lock Hillary Clinton up because she, you know, used a private email server, which turns out that the president's daughter does, et cetera, et cetera. But the reason it's important to step back in this particular instance is because the premise is that the Obama administration writ large, including Jim Comey at the top of the list uh, and people like Susan Rice, that they were hell bent to destroy Donald Trump. But here's an irrefutable fact that should shut down the whole conversation, which is that not once, but twice prior to Election Day 2016, Jim Comey announces that one candidate for president is under investigation. And that candidate, of course, is Hillary Clinton. Not once, but twice, including that second announcement happening right before Election Day. So, I mean, the sheer absurdity of this notion that Jim Comey and the Obama deep state were out to get Donald Trump. When you could make an argument, and I, you know, I'm not sure if I'd subscribe to it, but you could make an argument that Jim Comey and his decisions and the decisions of the Obama administration fatally wounded Hillary Clinton going into Election Day. I mean, what more can you say to point out the sheer abject absurdity um, of the president's charge? But, you know, what he's doing is he's just firing up that 33, 34, 35 percent of Americans who are not interested in anything other than being almost cult-like in their devotion to whatever Donald Trump says. Well, again, you know, following up on that, I think another thing that he's doing is he's discrediting investigations into Russian interference. Um, and, and two things have come up in, in just the past day or two that have, have given me some pause in this regard. And, and, and one of them is, that there's been some reporting that there are, you know, foreign actors and others who are trying to stir things up with misinformation around the COVID pandemic. Um, uh, another is that the president of the United States um, accused the Chinese of launching disinformation campaign against him um, because they want you know, easygoing Joe Biden uh, to be the president of the United States. Um, and, and, you know, this comes in the context that almost certainly over the course of the next six months, Russian disinformation is, is going to ramp up. We're going we're gonna to see more of this. And it looks like we're going to have an administration saying, uh, oh, we've already proven that stuff doesn't exist. Look over here at China, um, uh, uh, you know, and if you report any of this stuff, you, it could end your career. How do, how do you feel about the disinformation threat over the next six months? Well, um, let's start with, uh, I think, the very accurate uh, statement that there will be disinformation. Uh, we're already seeing it from the Chinese, um, you know, <laughs> and by the way, we're seeing it from the State Department, right? I mean, when the Chinese are out there peddling the baloney that the United States military somehow brought this into Wuhan a year before it actually appeared. You know, Mike Pompeo going on television and saying that there's very clear evidence that it escaped from a lab. I, I don't know which is worse. Uh, you know, I mean, neither uh, point is based in any evidence whatsoever. 
And I'm not trying to draw, let me be clear here, I'm not trying to draw an equivalence between Chinese misinformation and the foibles of Mike Pompeo. Um, but of course, the Chinese are going to do that and the Russians are going to do that. Here's, here's my somewhat optimistic premise, though. And, and, I, and I'm going to give you an optimistic premise and then I'm going to close with something that I do really worry about. The optimistic premise is that um, what we're all going through right now, we're about to go through 100,000 deaths in this country, right? More deaths than we had in the Vietnam and the Korean War combined. We're about to go through that this weekend. Uh, we have food lines. Uh, we have close to, what's the number now? 38 million unemployed. My optimistic premise from a political standpoint is that, that, that Donald Trump telling people to ingest disinfectant, blaming China, blaming Joe Biden, that that's actually not going to fall. That's not going to fly in a time of deep economic distress where people are really worried about their health, about whether grandma's going to survive this thing. That's going to look particularly uh, clown-like um, in a way that they lock her up back in 2016 when the economy was rocking and rolling and nobody was dying of a strange, you know, novel coronavirus. Um, I think he's going to have a hard sell. We, we know we're going to do it, and I'm sure that the Russians are going to help. Uh, but uh, I think it's going to be a harder sell. What I worry a lot more about, David, uh, is that he's already teeing up the notion that this election will be illegitimate. I mean, the baloney yesterday with uh, Michigan and the mail-in ballots He's already doing what he did in 2016, which is setting the table to say uh, that if he loses, it was an illegitimate election. I, I, there's very little doubt in my mind that that's what he will do. Uh, you know, the man who the day after his inauguration can claim, you know, that there was massive voter fraud uh, and that's why Hillary Clinton may have gotten more votes is there's no question in my mind that he does that. And how we respond to that, uh, that's, that's new territory for this country. No doubt. Ryan? Um, yeah, I, just on the note of, uh, I also have a similar feeling of optimism in that I think people are so concerned that maybe they're also seeking real information um, rather than staying in their cocoons of um, information that's maybe provided to them just by the president's um, social media feed and Fox News and that they'll actually try to seek out information that is required for the safety of their own families. And that also means that it can cut through a lot of the disinformation. At the same time, I guess I'm also worried that some of the social psychological evidence on like people's beliefs and conspiracy theories suggests that they go tr gravitate towards conspiracy theories and the like when they're under so much stress and things seem out of control, um, that that's the conspiracy theories are comforting for them of some explanation of levers of control being <laughs> exercised. And, in, and so I, I don't, I don't know how in the end that will, that will necessarily cash out. Um, I guess one other piece that I'd love to um, get your thoughts on um, in part, because I really do not know what the answer to this question is, which is what's Lindsey Graham thinking um, and it dovetails with our conversation so far in that Lindsey Graham is now um, ginning up an investigations into the investigators. He's uh, saying that he's going to investigate the unmasking, which seems senseless. Um, as you said, that just seems like, you know, that's baloney. It was your word for it. I think baloney's right. Malarkey, as I was thinking, another one, <laughs> kind of a Joe Biden term there. But um, but what's he, I'm trying to actually really get a grasp on what he's thinking. So the most recent move on his part is in the last 48 hours, 
he sends a letter um, to the DNI and to the Attorney General saying that he now wants a new list of uh, officials who unmasked not just Mike Flynn, but then a whole series of Trump campaign associates and Trump transition associates. And he lists some of them by name, several of them, uh, including the president, Jared Kushner, George Papadopoulos, and others. And the letter says that he doesn't just want the list of officials who unmasked them, but also the, quote, the reason given for any such request, end quote, for unmasking. And given what we know about the practice of unmasking, that it's often taken, I mean, that it's always taken, I should say, um, because there's a concern of a national security threat, you would think he's running a huge risk, which is that it will actually show that these individuals were involved in shady um, dealings that alarmed multiple officials across the agencies and departments, and that's what caused them to request and be authorized to have their identities revealed. Um, so then why is he, you know, so the question is, why is he doing it? And then this goes back to kind of our disinformation. My best guess might be that what the truth is doesn't matter um, here. And it's there, he's playing to a very different audience. He's playing to an audience of one, which is uh, President Trump thinks this is great. What a great distraction. The unmasking idea works. He's, and he's playing to the Trump base which just has been led to believe that the word unmasking carries with it this very negative, uh, pejorative sense that uh, is spun up as uh, that alone would show wrongful conduct and spying on the campaign and the transition team. So is that it? Or, or is there pieces of this that we're missing? Um, that's the question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ryan, you asked two very good questions. Um, for the, your first question was, why is Lindsey Graham doing what he's doing? Um, and uh, uh, I, I've been sort of thinking about that for three years, and I, and, I, and I sort of get it. I sort of get it just because I've watched enough dynamics to know um, how, uh, how people will warp their personalities and their dignity and their ethics in the service of what they see as their near-term political interests. And look, I think what I just said is sort of the definition of uh, most Republican senators uh, and Republican members of Congress today. These are people who, until Donald Trump was elected, were saying, I wouldn't even have this man in my house. He's terrible. I'm a, I'm a Ted Cruz guy. I'm a, I'm a Rubio guy. Donald Trump will destroy the Republican Party. Then after inauguration, all of a sudden, Donald Trump can do no wrong. I mean, you know, it's not hard to see what's going on here. What is disappointing, and look, we have a representative government in which we are, the members of Congress and the Senate, are supposed to respond to the political uh, pressures and, and incentives that are out there for us. And that's what they're doing. Um, it's disappointing that fewer of them are just saying, I can't take this anymore. Now, by the way, we've had record numbers of retirements in the, in the Republican Party in the Congress. Um, but it is, it is a little startling to me that, I can, that, that other than senators named Mitt Romney, not a single one of them is willing to criticize uh, this man who, uh, who, if I were in the business of defending the Republican Party, I would say quite likely has destroyed the Republican Party, has clearly turned it into some bizarre uh, populist, uh, nativist, uh, uh, barely hidden white nationalist uh, party uh, that has abandoned all of its previous economic positions. I mean, we're going to see a deficit under Donald Trump that will be a sum of probably the deficit of the first uh, you know couple dozen presidents we've had in this country. Um, and uh, and so I think what's happening now is they realize that the reckoning, if Donald Trump loses, is going to be beyond severe. If he is repudiated. You know, all of these members of Congress and senators who, who tucked their uh, dignity and integrity into a uh, little chest 
uh, for future use when Donald Trump was president, that, that day of reckoning is a lot sooner than if he wins a second term. And I think they think that the only way he wins a second term is if they just keep juggling these plates up in the air. Um, but the problem, and I think your other question is actually, um, is actually super interesting, right? Um, so uh, I, I uh, don't get that worried about these investigations because if these investigations are in any way, shape, or form transparent and clear and fair, and they do everything they can, of course, to make them not fair, um, you know, the absurdity of their arguments will emerge. We saw that this week, right, with the declassification of Susan Rice's memo to herself. My God, here it is, Fox News, clear the decks. And it turns out that the Susan Rice memo indicated that, in fact, Michael Flynn had had all these conversations with the Russian ambassador, a rather odd thing for an ex-general, you know, who's about to be part of an administration, and that President Obama, dun-dun-dun, told his people to go buy the book. You know, you just can't make this stuff up, right? So, you know, thank you, Lindsay, for, you know, offering up all of the information and all of the evidence that shows that the whole Obama gate, the whole unmasking thing is one big lie. Um, and so, again, it's hard for me to get too excited, uh, you know, because the more they try to float this stuff, the more those people who are not members of the Donald Trump cult will see what a game it is. And just to close out a thought that, that ties this back to something we said, you know, I, I have 750,000 constituents. Um, nothing focuses one's attention like the possibility that you could go hungry. Mm. Uh, and even here in fairly affluent Fairfield County, an awful lot of my constituents are worried about going hungry. An awful lot of my constituents are worried about what happens if uh, dad gets chest pains and has to go to the ER. That's real stuff. That is as real as it gets. Um, and in the face of a context where we're forced to be as real as it gets, the clown-like absurdity of this is China's fault, this is Joe Biden's fault, look what Joe Biden's son was doing, oh, unmasking. I don't think that is going to be all that powerful. Before I get to my question, I, I have to say I was reminded in listening to your exchange just now that it must have been in January of 2016 that I was at Davos at a lunch. I was actually hosting a lunch that we did with the Washington Post. And Lindsey Graham stood up and said, I will be in the NBA before Donald Trump is the president of the United <laughs> States. Um, uh, so, you know, making, making very public statements of that sort. Let, let, me, let me pick up on, on what you were just saying uh, and step away from the, the goings-on inside of Washington, D.C., particularly. Um, let me ask you a question. Is Danbury, Connecticut in your district? Danbury is just north of my district. Just so north. it's right, it's adjacent to mine, but it's actually in Johanna Hayes' district. So in 1939, my father escaped the Nazis and moved to Danbury, Connecticut. Um, and four years later, he was in the U.S. Army. But he and his family came to the United States because this seemed like the safe harbor and the place where um, opportunity was greatest. And the country was the clear leader in the world. Um, and I look at just the news today. Um, Xi Jinping has made a move on Hong Kong, uh, which essentially says, I don't care about the law. I don't care about our agreement with the British. We are going to assert our authority. Um, 
And it's not just, he's not just doing it because he fears the Hong Kong democracy movement. He's doing it because he thinks the United States is not the leader it once was, and that the U.S. has weakened the international community, and they can do things like this uh, with impunity, because the United States seems to be dismantling the international community that we've been building since the Second World War. Also today, we have the President of the United States announcing the latest in a long line of decisions to pull out of multilateral institutions and agreements today with the Open Skies Treaty, which kept us safe. Um, And it seems to me that there is a U.S. leadership void that is a consequence of all of these shenanigans we're talking about uh, and the lack of concern of the people at the top for us having a global role. And quite possibly because the agenda they are pursuing is one that is comfortable for the sponsors that help make this possible, and that is the Russians. We've never seen America as weak a leader as we are today since since before the Spanish influenza of, of, of 1918. And I'm wondering, you know, you've been a student of international affairs since you were in school. Do you see this as the case? Does this worry you? Do you think there is a, a rebound that's possible with just putting in a new president? Or is it going to take a long time to undo what's been done? Yeah, it's a great and, uh, and, and sort of sad question. Um, uh, there's, there's no question that what you say is true. And by the way, if we had somebody from the Trump administration on Peter Navarro or Mike Pompeo, he would agree with you. He would say, you know, it's a feature, not a bug of the Trump administration that we're uh, no longer going to, uh, you know, be active abroad because America first. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's not much dispute that, that, that this was, uh, you know, what Donald Trump wanted to do. And the problem with that is that um, it makes us less safe and less secure. Um, you know, it's a cliche to say that we have by far the most powerful military in the world. And that's absolutely right. But Republican presidents have always recognized and, you know, go back to a fairly recent memory, George H.W. Bush, when he uh, put together the coalition to kick Iraq out of Kuwait. Uh, George W. Bush, somewhat less successful in getting international um, uh, assistance for his war in Iraq. But nonetheless, realizing that without international approval, without international assistance, the United States is really hard for us to get things done. Uh, Afghanistan is another example. Again, I think we sort of blew it in Afghanistan, but the initial uh, George W. Bush, uh, you know, with the uh, uh, the first and only time in NATO's history that our Article Five was uh, was exercised, and we got our NATO allies to help us in Afghanistan. That's all gone. That is all gone. And what what are the you know what are the rewards for that? Um, Iran is now spinning centrifuges again. Congratulations, Donald Trump, because they weren't doing it when you were inaugurated. Um, I worry about, uh, you know, the policy with respect to Israel, which has seems to me to have been give Israel everything that it wants without in any way consulting the Palestinians. You know, at some point there are millions of Palestinians. Uh, they are now feeling like they, you know, that they, they don't have an alternative, uh, to, with via cooperation and that, that could get ugly quickly. 
Saudi Arabia, which is one of the more appalling regimes uh, on the planet, has free reign because the Donald Trump has given him free reign. And people like um, Xi in China and Putin understand that Donald Trump sort of has this uh, bizarre love for dictatorial power. Uh, and therefore is meek in the face of, of, of those leaders. So your question about does that change rapidly or, or not? Um, look, I, I think it, uh, our, our strength is our, is, is, our, is our values, our innovative capacity, uh, our diversity. Um, those things haven't gone away. They may have been compromised, but those things are still there, and they'll be there after Donald Trump. Um, I do worry about the fact that, you know, autocratic leaders being nativist um, is not a purely American phenomenon. Look at Hungary, look at Poland. Uh, you can go all over the world and see this reversion to this idea that, you know, there are true Poles and true Hungarians and even true Brits and, you know, true Americans. And by the way, if your skin is a different color or if you didn't come here, you know, a hundred years ago, you're not really one of us. That, that is a global phenomenon. And Donald Trump has damaged our ability to do something that, dare I say, the prime minister of Canada can still do, uh, maybe even the president of France, I never imagined I would be saying this, could still do, which is to say no. No, you know, the era of ethno-nationalism, uh, that it's your skin color or your last name or your religion that determines whether you're a number one citizen or a number two citizen, that is long gone. We, it's harder for us to say that now. Um, and it's going to take us some time, I think, to get back the credibility to be able to say to the world that, um, you know, we're not going back to this conception that, you know, probably contributed to a lot of the bloodshed of the 20th century where, you know, there are true Germans and then there are, you know, impure Germans. That's just, that's just not a path we should go down. And sadly, um, you know, I, I use that example because, of course, Donald Trump wasn't terribly clear uh, about what he meant when he said there were good people on both sides of a Nazi uh, uh, demonstration in Charlottesville, Virginia. And that's, that's, that's going to take us some time to get that moral stature back. Yeah, no, no doubt. And then there, of course, is the JCPOA, which we pulled out of, and the Paris Accord, which we pulled out of, and TPP, which we pulled out of, and the INF Treaty, which we pulled out of, and now the joint, the Open Skies Agreement, and, and who knows, maybe the New START Agreement is next, and uh, all those things are going to take some time to repair. Ryan, last question. Um, so I guess to return to the kind of the economic devastation of the coronavirus pandemic and what it means or especially the Northeast, um, in part, just to focus in on that, because it does seem like there's an area of bipartisanshipness in which there have been uh, good actions by governors um, on both, both from both parties. And then you're serving on the bipartisan Congressional Northeast Recovery Task Force, which also seems like a glimmer of hope for bipartisanship at the federal level to kind of grapple with the trade-offs. If you could just speak to where you see the task force being able to kind of make a difference along those lines and maybe be a bit of a counterbalance to the White House, um, which is uh, highly politicized, a large part of this, um, and made it into a public messaging campaign rather than dealing with both the public and the economics. But I think that'd be great just to talk about that a bit. Yeah, I, I am ever the optimist. I, I see some silver linings in this dark, dark cloud that we're all uh, uh, wandering around in right now. Uh, one of those is that the measures that the Congress has taken to date have really been about keeping food on people's table. 
And depending on how we recover, how and when we recover from the economic downturn, and fingers crossed that it's sooner rather than later, it's going to be pretty clear that we'll need to start thinking the way we were in early uh, 2009, uh, which is let's do some real stimulus. And there's an opportunity there, um, I think, to uh, employ people in the service of, and this is this gets to some of the things that are being talked about on the uh, on the committee on which I sit, uh, this Northeast uh, um, committee, um, to to really think about employing people to rebuild our infrastructure, um, to think about. Uh, training people um, to think about the new world, right? We're all doing a remarkable experiment right now. Well, I shouldn't say we all are, but uh, certainly any young person right now is doing a very real-time experiment in distance learning. Um, you know, our educational sector in this country was one of those sectors that was impervious to innovation and disruption, and they've just been disrupted in a major way. And uh, that opened some really interesting doors. You know, um, the model of paying a you know huge amount of money to go uh, you know uh, live in a dorm for four years and go to Ivy covered buildings that was not in a model that was serving most Americans. And now I think we're doing an experiment in how we can do probably the most important thing we can do for the long run in our economy, which is how can we train and educate Americans in a way that are that is more flexible, more modern, perhaps than you know giving four years of your life to this uh, you know the, this 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 academic monastery not probably the right word for most of us in college, but, uh, you know, divorced from the real world. So I do think there are some real opportunities. And and maybe the Democrat and the progressive in me also says that, um, boy, did we ever just get another very um, uh, clear demonstration um, of the extent to which uh, American families are really living on the economic edge, you know, richest country in the world. And it turns out that, you know, tens of millions of Americans, and not just the Americans who are always living in, I shouldn't say always living in poverty, but, but, but have lived in poverty prior to the pandemic, vast swaths of the middle class, um, both failed by their inability or unwillingness to save. Uh, that's the famous $400 number. You know, most Americans don't have $400 in the bank, um, but also dramatically failed by the safety net. Um, and I know it's going to be a partisan discussion, but we really need to have that conversation to say we just need to do better. And we can do better. We need, you know, departments of labor that don't require eight weeks to get a $600 check out to somebody who's newly unemployed. Let's invest in the systems that actually are there to catch people when they fall. And I know I'm sounding like a Democrat here, but, you know, this is a Democrat sitting in one of the more affluent corners of America. Uh, I have an awful lot of uh, Republican colleagues who are living in very poor corners of America in the South and in the Midwest. Um, who I would hope would, would would agree with me that, you know, we can argue about how big the safety net should be, but for God's sakes, it should be a lot more efficient and a lot more capable than it's been demonstrated to be. Yeah, no doubt. It's, it, you know, and, and, and frankly, you know, it is a risk to the United States to be as fragile as we've been demonstrated to be in that there are 130 million people in the United States who live in poverty or a low income. Uh, when you could, that's a, you know, it's a third of our society. Um, and now 40 million people unemployed. Uh, this is not a localized problem uh, and should not be a partisan one. Uh, fortunately for us, there are people like you in the United States Congress who are thoughtful and following these things uh, and leading the way um, to hopefully new solutions and, and, and correcting some of the errors that we've seen in the past. So we're very, very grateful that you could take this time to uh, join us in this conversation. Hopefully, we will have you back. Hopefully, things will be recovering at that time, uh, that there will be some kind of uh, rebound and 
who knows, perhaps we'll even be on our way to a new administration, uh, <laughs> which will bring uh, a, a smile to many faces, including, I suspect, the three of ours. Uh, in the meantime, thank you very much, Congressman. Thank you, Ryan. And let me encourage everybody, you know, Ryan is not just a professor at NYU. He's also the editor of Just Security, which for me, pound for pound, is doing some of the best work on all these issues that there is. So go to Just Security uh, and follow their work. And if you want more on us, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Thank you very much, everybody, and stay healthy.